So if you want, you can uh, turn to your Bible. 1 John 3. And I will uh, begin reading here. 1 John 3, 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Continuing in chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world." They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So again, as we looked at this text, the first thing we did was ask each other questions and do some wrestling. Uh, but then we also realized that there are from these texts three theological points uh, that we think need to be made. And within those, we will share some of the wrestling. So theologically, here is where we landed. The first is this. We have an assurance. We have an assurance of our standing before God we have an assurance of God's love for us that goes beyond our doubt and self-condemnation. Now again here, John calls on the character of God's love as assurance that we walk in truth. Remember again the audience, the context and culture of John's audience. Many in this time period were proclaiming a different form of the gospel than what Jesus proclaimed and taught, which really is no gospel at all. Gnosticism and other Platonic and Neoplatonic forms of thinking were raising doubts among the Christian community. The doubts that were being raised were based on the deity of Jesus, the role of the Spirit, and the nature of all material matter. The Gnostics were teaching that Jesus could not have been incarnate, since to them all material matter was by nature evil. The Roman society of the time was still proclaiming a multi-theistic approach to the spirit world. And persecution was thus on the rise against people of the way, those who called themselves Christ followers. So Christians in this culture were asking some hard questions. They were being asked some very hard questions. They were being exposed to some very difficult thinking. And many of them were even feeling condemned for the mere existence of doubt in their thinking. So John's words here that God knows everything and that he is even bigger than our hearts 
comes as a sigh of relief to the church at this time that is feeling pulled in multiple directions. 1 John 3, 19-24 is closely connected to the prior passage that Russ looked at last week. By what do we know that we are of the truth and that our hearts will be assured? By the love that we have for one another. Love is one of those key themes in this letter that John keeps coming back to. Love is a sign of the presence of God. When we sense love, we are actually in the presence of God. John will go into greater detail about the nature of God and how it is intrinsically connected to love in later passages. But this we can be assured of. God is the source of all love. All of it. And that source, that presence, gives us hope for the world when we see the presence of love in the world. It's a reminder that the imprint of God is present in anyone who has known love and felt compassion for one's neighbor. So theologically, our first point is that we have assurance in God's love and in our standing before him. Number two, there are commandments in this passage. There are commandments. There is an order to these commandments, and they involve these two things, belief and conduct. John implies here that our relationship with God is dependent on our obedience to two things. Now, Kevin will speak in a moment about some of the tensions that we've experienced in our discussions on this, the dependency of our obedience to God. The two commandments are simple from John. The first one is this, believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus And two, love one another. Now, in the Greek context, to believe in the name is not simply to acknowledge Jesus or even to agree that he existed. It means engaging in knowing the whole person of Christ, the character and nature of Jesus, namely that he is who he says that he is. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said. Which could either mean one of two things. He was committing the greatest blasphemy that we have ever heard, or that he is truly the Son of God. The Greek there is ego a me. I am he. I am God. It means to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of our souls. To believe in the name of Jesus is to accept him for who he really is. And the very nature of the character of Jesus, as we've learned, is love. Agape. Love, sacrificial, giving love. So the second command is inseparable from the first. John repeats what he quoted Jesus saying in his gospel, that we must love each other with that same selfless, sacrificial, forgiving love with which Jesus loved us. So together, these two commands, their commandments reveal a great truth about the Christian faith and life. It depends on both right belief and right conduct. The commands are in order. Belief must indwell in us in the form and the person of Jesus, which then empowers us to the results of loving our neighbor as ourselves. William Barclay said this, There can be no such thing as a Christian theology without a Christian ethic. And equally, there can be no such thing as a Christian ethic without a Christian theology. Dead guys have important things to hear. (laughs) To hear? To hear, well, I mean, for us to hear. For us to, yeah, because that's. Our belief is not real or tangible unless it is translated into action, and our action has neither authority nor force unless it is based on belief. Okay, number three. 
And this is where we get some more tension. John says in chapter 4 in this next section that we are to test the spirits, that everything is spiritual. The understanding, recognition, and subjection of the spiritual world was very different in the culture and context of John's day. While there may have been hypersensitivity to the attribute of everything having its source in either an evil spirit or a good spirit, I believe that in our present we have fallen into mostly a sense of denial of the power of the spiritual world. And I think that happens through us through either fear that we don't want to acknowledge the existence of the evil side of things, or through our logic. Our knowledge and our logic says, ah, we just, it's just kind of hard to believe in that. And, and I'll get to some of the tension in that here in just a moment. C.S. Lewis wrote this. This is in the preface to his book, The Screwtape Letters, which if you have not read, please read. He, another, he's dead, too, C.S. <laughs> Dead, Classic. Dead I might guy. go get some more coffee if you're going to keep no, going. I, no, I'm almost done. Here, here's, uh, get ready. We're fine. Yeah. No, yeah. we're fine. Yeah, okay. Here's what, here's what Lewis wrote. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So we must acknowledge that everything is spiritual. To not do so has us existing in a state of ignorance. Now, we talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit. In the time that we're talking about, in John's time, and especially from what we read in the New Testament, it seems that the coming of the Holy Spirit was much more demonstrable then than it is in our North American cultural church. In fact, we sometimes, as, as a segment of the church, we sometimes poke fun at the charismatic and Pentecostal traditions. But I would say that we do that in ignorance. Because the power of the Spirit cannot be denied And it is as potent today as it has ever been. We can't have it one way. We must have it both ways. We cannot believe in the spirit of good and disbelieve the spirit of evil. It's just inconsistent. It's illogical for us to do that. Like anything, though, there are abuses and misuses when it comes to this understanding and celebration of spiritual matters, which is why John tells us that we must test the spirits. John uses a repeated theme in this section. Some translations say from God, others say of God. Using the of God wordage, here's what John says. Test the spirits to see what? If they are of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit which does not confess Jesus Christ is not of God. God. Little children, we are of God. We are of God. He who is not of God does not listen to us. Love is of God. So, do the spirits we encounter have their source in God? What is the litmus test? John says, confession in Jesus incarnate, belief, and love played out in conduct. Remember that these are inseparable. They are sequential, but inseparable. This is why we have seen, we do see, and we will see again people proclaiming Christ, but actually acting in hatred. And we've seen that, unfortunately, a lot in the church. James reminds us 
in his letter, James 2, verse 19, even the demons believe and shudder. Now, these three points may sound a little simplistic. They may actually even sound a little black and white. So, Kevin, lean us into some of the tensions. Yeah. So, I don't have, when I hear those things, I don't have issue with that. I hear that and I would shake my head and say, yeah, I, I fundamentally agree with everything that Jeff says. And yet, there's some tension in kind of the in-between points in that section that I read. And I would even go as far as to say that that my life, uh, to a a large degree, has been lived in tension. That there's been tension in my faith for a long time. So sometimes I feel like I read, and what I read is not actually what I want to believe. Or Sometimes I read in one place, or what I read in one place seems contradictory to what I read in another place in the Scripture. Or the things that I think I know of God don't parallel with what the scripture seems to be telling me about God. And so there's some tension in that for me. How many, and let's, let's just be honest here. How many people have felt that tension before or actually just live in that tension to a degree? Yeah, I think this is really common in the church. Let me say this. It is okay. It's okay to be in that tension. It's okay to wrestle with these things. And and in fact, if we're not wrestling with these tensions, then one of two things is happening. Either we're not really reading the Bible, or we're actually not intellectually engaged with what we are reading. There is tension in this stuff. And I think we need to remember two things when we come upon these points. One, that God is mysterious, and we will never fully know him. He is bigger than we can ever fully know. He is a mysterious God, and we can find some peace in that. Secondly, the gospel of Christ militates against everything that our culture has informed us to be true and desirable. And so as we read the gospel, there should be tension, because we're all in a particular culture, in a particular time, and this speaks against some of those things. Loving others more than ourselves Sacrifice, praying for enemies, serving the oppressed, being gentle and patient in a world that values power and dominance. These things are not easy. These things, these gospel things, militate against our culture and what our culture tells us to be true and desirable. So that's just a little side note there. Uh, Sometimes you come across some of those points, the in-between points that raise tension. And here's one of those things. Let me read this. Uh, This is again from that first part that we read earlier. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. When I read this scripture, it seems like a quid pro quo to me. I actually had no idea what that meant, and so I had to ask Jeff what that meant. It's an if this, then that kind of statement. Our prayers are answered if we do things that please God. This seems to be espousing somewhat of this works-based theology. Let me me repackage it. As I read this, this is what I read. We have confidence in God when our heart does not condemn. And so, what we ask will be given because... We keep his commandments and do things that are pleasing. And yet my faith, my entire faith has been built around Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, 
not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. What I believe is that what we have in Christ is through grace and faith. It is not of our own accord. There is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. It cannot be achieved by our works. And yet there is a great tendency, and I fall into this, to quietly ascribe to a works-based theology to a conscious agreement that we are saved by faith, but a dysfunctional belief that if I could do a little more God stuff and a little less non-God stuff, then I will be more loved. Then God might hear my prayer. Then I could be fully insured of my standing before Him. I have lived this. I contend that many of us live this way. We read verses like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but we believe verses like 1 John. Although this verse, this, uh, this, John from, or this verse from 1 John, verse 22, and although this verse seems to indicate this very thought, this idea of a workspace theology, here is what I really believe this is saying. When we read this in light of all of chapter 3 and really in light of this entire book, here's what I think it is saying. We are adopted into God's family and therefore we are children of God. And children naturally aim to please their loving parents. And for those who abide in Christ, what they ask will be so aligned with the will of God that it will be given to them. John is speaking about character in verse 22 and not conduct, as Jeff had mentioned earlier. When a person's character begins to change is when their prayers begin to change. And so this passage isn't necessarily a salvific passage, I don't believe. I think this passage is making the argument, and you could, make, you could uh, say this entire book is making the argument for transformation and for sanctification. The work has already been achieved by Christ. The rest is a process of becoming more and more like Him. And in our adoption, we can truly abide in Christ. And for those who truly abide, you will naturally begin to ask for the things that God already had in mind. So to better frame this idea, I thought I might explain it in my relationship with my kids. So hang with me here for a moment. This might be a stretch. If it doesn't help you, forget it, but it helps me. My love for my boys, I have three boys. My love for my boys will never change. And if anything, I would say it deepens and grows daily. Yet they have really done nothing to earn it. They don't have incomes. They have to be reminded to use their manners. They test boundaries all day long. Their Legos are strewn about our entire house. I have almost thought about getting another job to pay for the amount of string cheese that we eat in our house. (laughs) And so amidst... The, the tireless amount of work and toil that Grace, my wife, and I put into raising these three little boys, training them what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to carry the Longmire name, even, it, even though it's an incredible amount of work, our love does not change. It deepens. It grows. But even amidst our unconditional love, it doesn't mean that they always get what they ask for or what they think they need. Now, there are times, as their lives continue to be shaped by God and by our love, that they ask for those things that are in our will, so to say. The more they listen, the more they respond to our teaching and our training, the more likely they are to ask for the things that are good for them and good for others. The scripture is pretty clear that God is greater than our hearts. 
when our hearts condemn us. But that if we reach that place of complete maturity in Christ, the place where our hearts no longer condemn us, then whatever we ask will surely be given. So in the same way, and I'll use my oldest theorem, if he woke up tomorrow fully mature, fully he's three and a half years old, fully mature, <laughs> self-actualized, having given himself completely over to the formation of Jesus Christ in his life, then everything he would ask for would be appropriate, good, and beneficial because it would be perfectly aligned with the will of God. It would not simply be his conduct changing, but his entire character would have been changed if we play out this scenario. Now, both you and I know this is not the case. My boys continue to ask for ridiculous things all day long. And in fact, I would say we're in that stage of parenting where we're saying no a lot more than we're saying yes. And in the same way, I still pray for stupid stuff. But as long as I become more and more transformed into the man that Christ desires me to be, then I begin to pray differently. My desires, my wants begin to align more and more with kingdom things. Our conduct is not going to win God's heart, but if we allow our character to be continually formed in Him, our lives will be pleasing to Him. Therein, again, my oldest He cannot do anything to make me love him more or less. But his character, as it is continually formed by Jesus, as it is continually formed in becoming a Longmire man, means that I become more and more well-pleased with who he is becoming. God cannot be bought. He cannot be won over with our works. Getting what uh, we pray for is not an if-then proposition. It's not based on what we do, but it's the very process of being transformed, of becoming like Christ in our very character, in the very fiber of who we are. So that what we ask for, what we desire, what we want, what we long for is more and more aligned with God's will. That is where the tension is for me. But that is what I believe God is speaking into my life, that it's about transformation. It's about actually my character changing. And when my character change, it aligns with his will. Hmm. When we rehearsed this, we didn't go this long. We didn't, no. We're, no, no, yeah, go. Yeah, we're going longer. <laughs> go. Um, and, and even in that, Kevin, I mean, I, I hear that tension in, in the statement that our lives will become pleasing to God. And, and, and I feel that tension, too. Yeah. Because my theology has always said that I am pleasing to God only because and through Jesus Christ. And yet there's this mystery of that's true, but our character shaping and the conduct that comes from that is important too. Um, So now we go to this next section in John's letter, chapter 4, which talks about this whole spiritual realm, and we're going to do that in two minutes. Um, No, actually, we're going to... Spend a little more time. But, but there's more um, tension in this. There's more tension um, from John when it comes to this idea of testing the spirits. You see, in the cultural context, again, there were lots of things competing for people's attention. There were um, things like docetism and Gnosticism and, and other isms and ologies that were fighting for people's attention. And, and everything was ascribed to having a spiritual source. And here's where my tension comes in on this. I like to believe in the good spirit, 
in the Holy Spirit, in the things that are not of evil, but I really don't like believing in the devil stuff. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, you know, in his book, um, The Screwtape Letters, one of the letters he wrote was, it is well for us to keep reminding them that to picture us as guys with red tights and pitchforks does well because it makes the devil out to be a comic figure and we know that we are not really of that. It's easy for me to think of the devil as that comic figure, but it's really hard for me to see evil spirits. And yet I must say that even in the the last few weeks, I have had experiences that remind me that we live in a spiritual world and that these spirits do exist. Here's what John is asking. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh? God in the flesh, God incarnate, not some mysterious spirit, not something to do with docetism or Gnosticism, that God was incarnate. If you do, you are dearly loved by God. If not, you are the Antichrist. That's what he says. For the spirit which does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. You are either for God or against God. There is no middle ground. Antichrists are false prophets who have already gone out into the world speaking in God's name. The aim of the Antichrist is to deceive people by denying the truth about Jesus Christ, about who he is. And in particular, within the context of 1 John, it would be denying the humanity of Jesus. Now, 1 John is not the only biblical book to alert to the dangers of false prophets. This danger was not hypothetical, but real. For many believers in that day had left the Christian community, misled by heretical teachings on this very topic. And you know what? That still happens today. Think about the way that the Christian church has been misled into wrong thinking that has caused all kinds of divisions and sects and other ways of looking at Jesus. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world, John promises us that we who adhere to the truth have overcome the evil one. We have overcome those blasphemies. We have overcome that wrong teaching. The one in you in this verse refers to the Holy Spirit of God, the indwelling one, the one who dwells in every believer The one in the world refers to Satan, the prince of this world, the god of this age, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The passage today from John teaches us how to recognize the real spirit of God in us by identifying the counter spirit of the Antichrist. Our God is far greater than the one in the world. And I think we sometimes neglect to remember the truth of how much power we have over an already defeated enemy. For most of us, we may find it hard to understand the significance of 1 John because docetism and Gnosticism are not as prevalent today, at least not in their original forms. Even though the humanity of Christ may not seem like it's much of an issue for us today, it's still necessary for us to understand it. We accept that Jesus Christ is fully human and fully divine, but if I were to ask you why you believe that, how would you answer the question? Because my pastor tells me so? If that's the case, then we have failed in our task as teachers. The faith which we profess cannot be a blind faith. It must be a faith seeking understanding. We must learn to read the Bible for all it's worth and discover within it a transforming new world. 
You see, the central message of God has not changed. What needs to change is our mindset and attitudes when we engage with the scriptures. Though we often choose to deny it, we encounter false teachings and false spirits every day in our lives. We may not face the same issues as the early Christians, but our challenges are just as real. Today, we struggle with atheism, agnosticism, pluralism, postmodernism, consumerism, a prosperity gospel, a health and wealth theology, me-isms, and all the other isms and ologies that we can come up with. So what is our response? What is the central message of our gospel? John responded harshly to his culture. He took a stand. What is our stand today? Do we even have a stand? The question I've been asking myself a lot recently And hear this in the heart that I mean it. The question I ask myself is, am I an authentic Christian? Am I for real? Am I a true follower of Jesus? Have I practiced what I preached? Is God performing his work of transformation in my life? Am I becoming more Christ-like? Does my life reflect the Holy Spirit of God inside me? In our struggle between Christ and culture, sometimes we neglect one for the other. For John, there is no middle ground. You are either in the light or you are in the darkness. You are either of the truth or you are of falsehood. You are either from the world or you are from God. You either believe in the spirit of God or you believe in the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, we may not like or agree with or be comfortable with John's black and white tone in this letter. I know it's a tension for me. I would much rather this be gray. It's not for John. We cannot deny the importance of this. Ultimately, John is right to warn us against the spirit of the Antichrist. To compromise on God's truth is to acknowledge a counterfeit God. It is to believe the counterfeit spirit. It is to preach a counterfeit gospel. Richard Niebuhr wrote a a seminal book on Christ and culture. And he wrote this sarcastically about what we are tempted to redefine as the modern gospel. Quote, we want to define it as, quote, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Is this the gospel we believe in? So what I would say to us in the context of the way that we are conformed, unfortunately, to culture, is for us not to give up our faith, for us not to turn to the dark side, for us not to believe every spirit, for us, like John tells us, to test them, to see if they acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, see if they practice what they preach, because John says, by this you would know the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is in you. So how do we identify the real from the counterfeit? Uh, I watched this show called Pawn Stars. It's a really great show. This guy, Rick Harrison, who works behind the counter, people bring stuff in, and he can tell them, especially with Rolex watches, he can tell them whether it's a real or a counterfeit, because he knows every single minutest detail of a Rolex watch. What we would see as being a real Rolex, he looks at and says, that is fake. 
So how do we know the real from the counterfeit? For us to identify the counterfeits, we must know the real thing inside and out. We must know our God. We must know our Savior. We must know the voice of the Holy Spirit inside and out if we are to know the counterfeit. And we can do this because God has given his Spirit in us. Our knowing this is the best way for us to identify the counterfeits. So we're going to do something to conclude our time this morning. Um, We are going to stand together and we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you've looked at our website, um, you would see that our statement of belief is simply the Apostles' Creed. And this is a critical place for us to begin. Remember, our, our text this morning talks about our belief and our conduct. Yes, there are tensions in those, but it's about our belief and our conduct and our testing of the spirits. This is what we believe. The church wrote these down hundreds of years ago as a statement of what we believe. This identifies us as people of the way, but we also can use it for this purpose, and that is to test the spirits. If you cannot make this statement, if you cannot recite these words, then you are counterfeit. So we stand today together and we recite the creed. It'll be up on the screens behind us. Um, Let's do that and then um, Kevin will close us in prayer.